The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Jerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Jerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shebethel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. The word of the Lord. Well, today we conclude our series in the book of Haggai. This is the last sermon from Haggai. This is also my last Sunday in the pulpit. I'll be here next Sunday, but then we will be on sabbatical for the summer months. And I want to thank all of you for this gift that you're given to me and my family to take a sabbatical. It's a great, it's a great gift to us. But today we're going to wrap up this book of Haggai, which is a little Old Testament prophecy book, just two chapters at the end of the Old Testament which I believe contains the Lord's directives for today's evangelical church, of which we are a part. Chatham is part of a larger evangelical movement in America, and so we have to wrestle with the problems and the successes of that movement together. So we already learned from from Haggai about the need to consider our ways and to repent. We've also learned about the direction for the future. We've talked about the reasons to persevere and to continue to pursue holiness. And today, we conclude with the prophet's final message. It's a brief message, and it's directed specifically to Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Judah at that time. And because it's directed to him, we can take it as a personal message, but if we look more closely at it, we will see that it has something important to say to the church, to the Christian, and something important to say about Christ. So let's look at what it has to say to the church, to our church specifically, but also to the larger evangelical church. Much of what was said to Zerubbabel specifically applies more broadly to the church, to God's people. Zerubbabel was a leader of a small, relatively small community of God's people. They had just returned from Babylon, Persia, where they were in exile. They were allowed to rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. But they were surrounded by hostile tribes all all around them, people that did not want them to get established in the land again. And they were under the rule of Persia and specifically Emperor Darius. So listen, in that context, listen to what the Lord says to Zerubbabel, the governor of this little community, in verses 21 and 22. The Lord says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdom of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down everyone by the sword of his brother. The Lord says to this little community that is struggling in face of the opposition from all around them and the political pressure on them from above, the Lord says, none of the kingdoms of this world 
will survive my judgment. None of them will last. None of them. None of the tribes, none of the empires. The kingdoms and authorities and thrones and kings that appear to be strong will fall apart. They will just collapse under God's shaking. Now, it is a prophecy about the final judgment and the ultimate destiny of all worldly power. However, it also contains a reminder and an encouragement for any specific time in history. This can be applicable to any time that we find ourselves or we can look in the history of the church. Now, look, for example, at the mention of the horses and the chariots and their riders. Now, this is a specific reference to the Song of Moses in Exodus. It's a reference to the crossing of the Red Sea where the Lord defeated the Egyptian army. God's people were leaving, delivered out of slavery. They're leaving, and yet they find themselves stuck. So the Lord parts the seas, and when, when the Egyptian army follows, they drown in the water. It's a subtle reminder that God's people have been under the rule of another king, and, and the Lord delivered them from that. So whatever's happening then in Jerusalem, whatever's happening now, this has happened before. And the Lord has delivered us from all the powers over us. Now, such a statement about the temporary nature and the fragility of earthly power must have made Zerubbabel think of Babylon. They had just come back from a long exile in Babylon. In fact, his grandparents and parents were taken from Jerusalem into exile to Babylon for almost 70 years they were there. But now... God's people are back in Jerusalem. And Babylon has been taken over by the Persians. The mighty Babylon. The mighty Babylon has fallen. You start thinking along these lines, you start applying these kinds of verses to history, and you realize that there have been many powers, there have been many kings, there have been many empires. It's one after another. They come, but then they go. They collapse. The mighty Babylon fell, just like Egypt before it. And because we have the luxury of looking back at the centuries following Haggai's prophecy, we can also mention the fall of Greece under Alexander the Great that seemed completely unstoppable, ready to conquer the whole world, going into areas unknown to their civilization and finding new lands and new people to conquer. And yet Alexander fell in his prime. Greece eventually was conquered by another power. We can think about Rome during the time of Christ, Rome who seemed so strong and controlling God's people, and yet that is the very, very time when Christianity is born and grows and conquers Rome. Haggai's message to the governor is that all earthly kingdoms will be shaken by God and they will collapse. In verse 22, Haggai says that all the kingdoms fall by the sword of his brother. Now, there are plenty of examples in the Old Testament of the enemies of God's people who have gathered to finally conquer a city turning on themselves and in their confusion defeating themselves and fighting among themselves. 
But I think there's something even more fundamental that Haggai is telling us here about the nature of earthly power. It is the principle of self-destruction. There is a principle of self-destruction that is inherent in every worldly power. Because all power is ultimately derived from God. When it is used independently of Him, and especially in opposition to Him, which describes any kingdom or institution or community that is not engaged in the worship and service of the true and living God. Whenever that power, that's God's power, is used against him or used outside of him or used not for his purposes, it is prone to self-sabotage and self-destruct. Amen. Now, I, as you know, and as you've been all following what's happening in Ukraine, this is a, a great example of how a great power once perceived as one of the greatest powers in the world, self-destructs. Putin's Russia is, is already experiencing an, an incredible catastrophe. Why? Because of their arrogance. Simply because of their arrogance. It's the same arrogance that we find in any empire before its fall. It feels invincible, and so it makes decisions that make it vulnerable and ultimately lead to its demise. Now, where does this arrogance come from? Well, it comes from seeing yourself as independent from God, as if your power is not derived from Him, as if you are the source of your own power. Once you start seeing yourself in that way, whether you're an empire or an individual or a community or a government, if you see yourself independent from God, it is the same as seeing yourself in the place of God. There really is no other option. Because if you reject that all power comes from Him and it is delegated to you, and you start thinking that somehow it comes from you, you are assuming the role of God Himself. And no human being can bear the weight of divinity. And no human institution can bear the weight of divine ambition. It cannot help but collapse under pressure. Sometimes it takes decades, sometimes it takes centuries, but that collapse always comes. It always comes because of the nature of that power and because of the principle of self-destruction that is inherent in it without God. Now, I've told this story before, I think. When I, when I was a kid in 91, in the summer of 91, I came home from probably playing outside, turned the TV on, and, and I was growing up, in, this is in Ukraine, so we had three channels and a fourth educational channel to help you with schoolwork. So the three channels, and so I turned the TV on. The first channel, Swan Lake, the ballet. I was like, well, that's really weird. That's not what it's supposed to be on TV. I turned it to the, next, the second channel, Swan Lake again. It's exactly the same thing. Third channel, Swan Lake. That could mean only one thing in the Soviet, uh, Soviet state. There's a, there's a coup that's happening in the Kremlin. That's why they're showing the ballet. They're trying to, to distract you and pacify you. And when I think about that time, how quickly things fell apart, how quickly the Soviet Union fell apart, we'd never thought it could happen, you see. We thought it was so strong, it could never be destroyed. You know, we lived among these 
these huge monuments and, and these great gray granite buildings, cement buildings that exemplified the power of the empire. And yet, one day in August, the empire was shaken <laughs> and it collapsed. This once great empire fell. Now, that happens again and again in history. And sometimes we get a closer look when you're there and you can kind of experience it from within. Sometimes you watch it on the news. Sometimes you read it in a textbook. But that happens again and again. And so there's a message that the Lord wants Zerubbabel to hear. No matter how scary it feels, no matter how powerful Persia feels, no matter how hostile these tribes are, these are all temporary, fragile expressions of power. And the Lord will one day shake them all, and they will all collapse. Now, if you think about that, and just that, how is that encouraging? <laughs> how is it encouraging to know that everything's going to fall apart? God is going to shake everything. Everything's going to fall apart because nothing can, 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 uh, can hold his gaze. How is that encouraging? Well, you have to read verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord, on the day of the shaking, on the day of the Lord, the Lord says, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now we have the contrast. The first part of the message, nothing will be able to withstand the Lord's shaking. But the second part is that when the Lord shakes the kingdoms, he will secure Zerubbabel as a ring on his own hand. The hand that will shake the nations will never lose its ring. And the Lord says you will be as secure during that great judgment, that great shaking, as if you were a ring on my finger. While everything around him will collapse, Zerubbabel will survive as part of something permanent and indestructible. That's why this is encouraging. The shaken will come, and everything will fall apart except for the permanent, unshakable, indestructible part of God's work. Now, we need to understand the background of the signet ring image here. Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jeconiah, or Kaniah, or Jehoiachin. He was the last king, the last legitimate Davidic king of Judah before the exile into Babylon. Now, Jeconiah only ruled for three months, and he was a terrible, terrible king. And there was a prophecy about him. And this is in Jeremiah 22, 24 and following. This is directed to Jeconiah, who's called Kaniah in this, this particular passage. As I live, declares the Lord, Though Keniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. The Lord is comparing Jeconiah, Zerubbabel's grandpa, the last king of Jerusalem, the last Davidic king that ruled on the throne of David. He's comparing him to a signet ring. Signet ring is, is a symbol of power. 
This is where kings would, would have a seal, and they would seal documents to show that it was on their authority. Orders were sealed by the authority of the king, and the symbol was the ring that was pressed into the document, into the wax of the document, or clay. This was to show that this is on king's authority. This is as if the king is doing this. And so Jeconiah, as any king in Israel, any king in Judah, was God's representative. He was the symbol of God's power. His authority was derived from God. And he was supposed to exercise God's authority in the way that God wanted him to do it. But because Jeconiah was a, was a terrible king, the Lord says that there will be an exile, and I will take the ring, I will take the signet ring off my hand, and I will hurl it into Babylon. It's a curse. It's a curse. He says, I will take the kingdom from you, and you will no longer be my representative. You will no longer be my symbolic presence, my authority in this land. And so the ring was taken. Jeconiah is no longer God's representative. And the Davidic dynasty seems to be interrupted here. Now, the Lord speaks to Zerubbabel, Jeconiah's grandson, the governor of Judah, installed by Darius of Persia, and he says to him, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. The Lord is putting his signet ring back on his finger. He took it back from Babylon. He found it, he brought it back, and he put it on his finger. And now the Davidic dynasty in Jerusalem has been restored. Zerubbabel, however he is perceived by Darius and the surrounding tribes, is God's own anointed and he exercises God's authority in Jerusalem. This means that whatever Zerubbabel builds, his kingdom, God's kingdom, God's work will last forever because his kingdom is of a different kind. It is unshakable and indestructible. And so, yes, there will be a great shaking and all the other empires will, will fall, Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. But this work, this kingdom, God's people, God's community, living under the law, worshiping in the temple, will never disappear. It will never be done. It will never fall. Now, do you remember Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream? This is just a few decades before, a few years before our time in Haggai. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. In his dream, he saw a statue made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. But that statue was destroyed by a rock. Now, what was the dream about? Daniel interpreted it for him, and he said the dream is about kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God replacing them all. Now, listen to Daniel 2, 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. 
Now, what's the message to Zerubbabel? What's the message to the evangelical church today? Well, here it is. You are part of an indestructible institution. You're part of an eternal kingdom. Have you thought about it this way? When you come to church on a Sunday morning, you're actually exercising your role in an indestructible institution. This cannot be destroyed. Everything else can be destroyed, but this, God's people, God's purposes, God's redemptive work, that cannot be destroyed. It's part of an eternal kingdom. It's part of something that is unbeatable, indestructible. The question, the implicit question in this passage is, will God shake you or will God take you? Because he says, I'm about to shake the thrones, I'm about to shake the nations, but he says, but I take you, I will take you, Zerubbabel, and I will make you a signet ring. That's the question. Will God shake you and you will collapse under the weight of divine ambition, self-destruct? Or will you be taken and hidden and protected and kept safe in the great shaking? When it seems that the world has fallen apart, when the very foundations of society seem to be crumbling, the church is safe. The church is safe. We need not fear. So many of our decisions today are shaped by our fear of what we're trying to prevent, what we're trying to react to. But at its very core, that is not the right strategy because we cannot be destroyed. It's an indestructible institution. We're part of an eternal kingdom. So keep going, church. Keep going. No matter where the threats come from, just like in the days of Haggai, maybe it's just some local tribes causing trouble. Or maybe it's the mighty Persian Empire pushing down on you. Or maybe it's Satan himself that's causing trouble in the air. Whatever it is, whatever the threats are, we need to remember what Scripture says. We need to believe what God says. We're safe. We're safe. We cannot be destroyed. There's absolutely no scenario in which the church stops existing, in which God's people just stop and fall and are destroyed. So we need to keep serving the King of glory because His kingdom shall never be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. God has done great things, and we will say it together. On that day, in the day of the great shaking, we will feast and we will weep no more. We will be secure with him. That's a word to the church. Here's a word to the Christian, to the individual Christian. Much of what God said to Zerubbabel applies to us as particular disciples of Christ. So look at verse 23 again. 
On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Does this apply to you? Has the Lord taken you? Not like a Liam Neeson movie taken, but <laughs> in a very positive way. Has the, thank you, whoever laughed at this joke. <laughs> Has the Lord taken you into his family? Has he taken you into his kingdom? Has he welcomed you into his life? Has he made peace with you, and now you are part of his eternal kingdom, the indestructible institution of the church? Does this apply to you? Are you in that group? Are you his? Do you belong to him? Because if you belong to him, everything he said to Zerubbabel applies to you. Zerubbabel may have been a governor in Darius's kingdom, but in the Lord's kingdom, Zerubbabel was his subject, his servant, his son, a signet ring on God's finger. If you are taken by the Lord, you can survive any shaking of the heavens and the earth. Amen. If you are a Christian like Zerubbabel, you are the Lord's servant. You are his slave. You are his servant. And some of you say, well, I'm nobody's servant. This is not encouraging. I'm nobody's servant. The truth is that you cannot avoid serving somebody or something. The question isn't whether you're going to be free from everything or a servant. The question is always, whom do you serve? What do you worship? That's always the question because humanity is made in a way that we cannot help but follow something, worship something, serve something or someone we cannot avoid that. You always live for something or someone. And if you don't have that, you're not living, you see? You stop existing. Everybody needs a hope. Everybody needs a goal. Everybody needs a master. You're willing to die for something or someone, every one of us. Now, the things are different, but all of us are willing to die and sacrifice for something or someone. So whatever it is, whatever he or she is, that's your master. And the problem with all the earthly masters is that they want to use you for their own purposes. They're not good masters. But the Lord is a different kind of master. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters says this through a senior demon. The demon says, we want cattle who can finally become food. He, meaning God, wants servants who can finally become sons. You see the difference? Earthly masters want to take advantage of you. They want to diminish you. They want to use you up. But the Lord takes you, and the Lord wants to make you greater than you were before. He's actually changing you and growing you, and your position changes because you're serving Him. Now, what kind of master is the Lord? Listen to John 15, verses 13 and following. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is Jesus' definition of his lordship. It says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
If you serve me, you are my friends, and I lay down my life for my friends. No longer do I call you servants. That's the kind of Lord he is. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The Lord is the kind of master who loves you and lays down his life for you. He calls you to obey him because only in his service can you bear abiding fruit, a fruit that will still be there after the shaking. He chooses you by grace, and he calls you friends. So we say, that's the master I want. This is the kind of master I want to serve. Master who would die for me, who did die for me, master who loves me, master who's going to lift me up. And yes, I'm starting as a servant, and I will always obey him, but he sees me as a friend. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? If you are a Christian, you've been taken by the Lord, you are as secure as a ring on God's finger. You're made in God's image. You are his representative in this world. You are his signet ring, the seal of his presence, and he will never let you go. You know, the kings were really careful with their signet rings because once you have that ring, you can do a lot of damage in the kingdom because everybody else is going to think this is done on king's authority. So they kept it on their finger. And when the fingers got tired of the heavy signet rings, they would put it around their neck on a chain. So what the Lord is saying here is that you are like a signet ring that will always be next to me, always will be in my possession, will be protected, will be kept safe because you are precious to me. I heard uh, John Blanchard, who was a, an evangelist and a preacher, uh, English preacher, he shared from his own life a, a, a tremendously touching story, I thought. His wife, so this was earlier in his life, they had five children, five sons, I believe, and, and his wife just experienced an unexplicable breakdown. And for a whole year, she was pretty much in, incapacitated. Couldn't really do anything. He said he would come home and find her on the bathroom floor and would have to lift her up, take her to bed. And people all over the world were praying for them. And after a year, the Lord miraculously healed her and completely restored her. And after that restoration... After all the suffering that they went through, John's wife said, I want to take you to a jewelry store, and I want to buy you a ring. And he had never, never worn a ring, didn't like jewelry, didn't like things on his fingers. And so she picked it out. They didn't have a lot of money, so she picked a cheap, kind of pathetic-looking ring, something that is overlooked by others looking for a nice ring at the store. And she gave it to him, and he said, there's no other piece of jewelry in the world that I would exchange it for. Why? Because of the symbolic nature of the relationship. Because it came from his wife. 
doesn't matter how much it costs. doesn't matter what your life is. doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of you. The Lord sees you as a signet ring on his hand. He'll never let you go. Never let you go. If you are a Christian, you have been chosen by God. Much like that ring, you have been chosen by him, by grace, to be his forever. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1. And by the way, if you're struggling with your identity in Christ, whether you're wondering what God thinks of you, what he feels about you, go to Ephesians 1 and meditate on these verses. I'll read just a few of them. Ephesians 1, 3 and, and 4 and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Because you are saved by grace, because he chose you, no amount of shaking of the heavens and the earth, and that includes God's wrath against sin, that includes it, no amount of shaking of the heavens and the earth can move you one hair out of God's acceptance of you. Someone said that the angels may be happier in God's presence, worshiping around the throne, but they are not any more secure in God's presence than you or I are in Christ right now. The struggling evangelical church today is full of Christians who need to be restored in their true identity in Christ. Amen. That may be you. Maybe you this morning, you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus, you love him, but you've allowed other things and other masters to define who you are, how you see yourself, how you see other people. You need to return to how God sees you. You're a signet ring on his hand. Only out of that identity, only out of that confidence, only out of that incredibly deep joy in God's presence, knowing that we belong there because of Jesus, only out of that identity can we be any good for each other. Amen. Can we be any good for this world? Now, I've already mentioned Jesus several times, and I can't, I try to keep it to the end sometimes for rhetorical purposes, but I often can't do that. I have to mention him even before I get to the point because he is so intertwined with everything we're talking about. And so let's talk about him directly. There's a word about Christ in this message. Because there is no eternal kingdom without an eternal king. And there's no Christian without Christ. Without Christ, there's no hope for the church. So everything I've said so far especially the times where I didn't directly point to Jesus, all of that only makes sense if you have Jesus. All of that only makes sense if Jesus is at the center of it and it's explained by what he's done and he's permeating our thinking on all these issues. So verse 23, one last time. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you declares the Lord of hosts. 
The problem with this being applied only to Zerubbabel is that Zerubbabel never became a great king. While the Davidic dynasty was restored through him, that is true, that promise was fulfilled, he was not the great son of David that would bring God's eternal kingdom. He wasn't. But when you get to the New Testament and read the genealogies of Jesus, you find that both Matthew and Luke make a point to include Zerubbabel because the Davidic line continues through Zerubbabel, but it culminates in Jesus Christ. One commentator put it this way, in the last great victory of the divine purpose, Christ, the greater son and wonderful antitype of David and Zerubbabel, will be Jehovah's signet, whereby he shall impress and imprint upon all nations his own majesty, his own will and his ways, his own perfect ideal and his own very image. When God's people were renewed in Jerusalem, Haggai was God's prophet, Joshua was God's priest, and Zerubbabel was God's king. But for our church to be renewed, we need to see Jesus Christ as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is a good master because he became a servant for us. He is the Lord's servant of Isaiah 53 and the other three servant songs of Isaiah. He's the servant that gave his life for his people. He became a crucified master so that he can share his life with you. And everything he has, he now offers to you. What kind of master does that? Jesus does that. His inheritance is now your inheritance because you have become his co-heir. It's the kind of master he is. He welcomes you into the possession of all that he has. Whatever is his is now yours because whatever was yours has become his. He became poor so you can be rich. He hurt so you can heal. He died so you can live. He was abandoned so you can be accepted. He rose again so you can rise with him and have eternal life with God. That's the kind of servant master Jesus is. He is God's signet ring. He perfectly reflects God's nature because he is by nature God. Now listen to Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When Jesus became human, God impressed his own nature on humanity like a royal seal and claimed it. And now God's authority to rule his creation is concentrated in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus chose to come into our world so we can see God's glory. He chose to come and be with us as Emmanuel, God with us. He chose to live a perfect life under the law as our representative. He chose to suffer, and he chose to die for our sins. He chose to rise again and to rule over us at the right hand of the Father. So when that day comes, and God shakes the heavens and the earth, and all the thrones are overthrown, 
and the strength of all the nations is destroyed, there will be one king over the world, and his kingdom will have no end. In the world's empire's rubble, there will stand the son of Zerubbabel, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And all his people, and that means you, that means any true believer today, all his people will rule with him as his kings and queens and priests in his kingdom forever. That is the answer to all of our problems.